1: We're not dealing with an incompetent government. We're not dealing with an ideology. We're dealing with a criminal gang. The 100,000 barrels of oil that Venezuela gave to Cuba wasn't for doctors or wasn't for a sports trainer. I think it was just payment for protection, for protection money.
0: Would it be an overstatement to call Venezuela a narco state? No, Venezuela is
1: a narco state without any doubt. Pedro, how does this end in Venezuela? Badly.
0: This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of thecypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. I first met Pedro Borelli several years ago and we became friends from the first handshake. We talked politics, we talked economics, we talked national security, we just talked. Pedro is a member of Venezuelan civil society. His father was foreign minister. He was on the executive board of Venezuela's state oil company. He cares deeply about the future of his country, which is now mired in crisis. I had the opportunity to sit down with Pedro this week and talk about Venezuela's past and, more importantly, its future. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. (laughs) Pedro, welcome. It is uh, it is great to have you on the show. Well, it's an honor to be here. It struck me watching the World Series, how many Major League players are from Venezuela. In fact, in Game 2 of the World Series between the Dodgers and the Astros, won in, in dramatic fashion by the Astros. The two key home runs were hit by players from Venezuela. So there's a real, there's a real tie between the United States and Venezuela when it comes to baseball, isn't there? Well, that's
1: one of the most important ties and one that I think it's enduring and one that actually Venezuelans appreciate. You know, There's an aspirational element of every kid in Venezuela who plays baseball to end up in the major leagues. I think 357 Venezuelans have actually made it to the major leagues. So that's, after the Dominicans, that's kind of the largest contingent. So yeah, I mean, it is it is an enduring tie and one that we hope that actually gets stronger.
0: I'm excited, Pedro, to have you on the show, but because I know the Venezuelan government regularly and incorrectly says, believes that the Central Intelligence Agency is messing around in the politics of that country. I wanted to make it absolutely clear to my listeners how you and I met. It was not in some shadowy alley or in a safe house somewhere talking about how we undermine the Venezuelan government. Um, So how did we meet?
1: Americans love meeting their neighbors and breaking bread with their neighbors. And the fact is that you ended up being my neighbor and we never did break bread. I mean, it took us five years to figure out who we were. And uh, we met completely, almost by coincidence. I, mean, I think we were having a party, and we we're going to have the cars being parked in front of your house. So we made sure that you were invited, and you didn't show up. Your wife showed up, and then we kind of.
0: Followed I think I was up. working. I think I was. Yeah, working. I think
1: you were working. <laughs> I think you were doing some really weird stuff in
0: Benghazi <laughs> or
1: around Benghazi, which we won't talk about. <laughs>
0: That's a bad word. A in our bad house word <laughs> here.
1: <laughs> but uh, but we just followed up as friends, and I mean, I I, I do think this is you know, an, an incredible coincidence, and one that I've treasured because out of that came a friendship that I value. You and, and I've learned a great deal. But fundamentally, you know, I think what I like is your family. I mean, more more than anything, I think it's you and uh, Mary Beth and your three kids of being almost part of our family.
0: And we feel exactly the same way. Uh, very special to us. Your family was deeply involved in, in public service in Venezuela. Your father was the foreign minister, ambassador to Washington, ambassador to London, presidential candidate in Venezuela. What was it like growing up in a political household in in Venezuela?
1: Well, I actually was born a month after my parents' return from exile. My parents had been in exile. The dictatorship, the previous dictatorship, uh, lasted almost 10 years. In 1958, it fell, and right immediately, my parents and my grandparents returned. Uh, my grandfather had been a very important player. They were in, in
0: exile in Spain. In Spain. So I was conceived in Spain
1: and born in Venezuela. And uh, so I always lived around politics. My my father ran for president when I was 10, and I traveled all over the country with him. I had a very deep sense of involvement. I mean, I'm the only male. I have four sisters. I'm right smack in the middle. That almost put a lot of pressure on me. My dad had always had lost his dad when he was three. So he didn't really know how to be a father. But he knew that he definitely had to protect me from my mother and my sisters in terms of, you know, not being overly spoiled and, and stuff like that. So I'd been sent to boarding school in England when I was eight until I was 11. So it was kind of a you know hard living, but I always felt a sense of duty towards my country. And the people that my father surrounded me were his own mentors. So by my uh, godfather was a former president, the guy who actually reestablished a democratic or civil government back when the previous dictator had been overthrown, a long-serving dictator. So I, I kind of grew around people who are historical figures and who had played an, an important role in the country. And I think that really marked me. I mean, I knew that I could never be like them. and I never had a sense that that was the objective. But I did understand that they did set a course that I had to walk and that the example I had to follow. I, I didn't have to become them. I didn't have to mimic them. But at least I couldn't say I did not have good mentors and good examples.
0: And then you yourself served your country. You were on the executive board of this state-owned oil company, Pedevesa, which at the time was largely seen as the best-run state oil company in the world. Yeah, that was it. I mean,
1: I would started my career after graduating, I returned from the U.S. after graduating, and joined Pedevesa. And then I came to get my master's and ended up spending 11 years to J.P. Morgan after that. And as a result of a fight with the president, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I, we really had a big disagreement and he suddenly understood what I was trying to tell him. He made some dramatic changes in the government and then called me and said, look, I paid attention to you. Now you have to come and serve and I can offer you only one thing that I think will be attractive to you. Join the board of PSA. You're a young guy, but you have a lot of experience that this guys in the board don't have. And I think it would be important. I think you can shake them up. And, and, and I, I took the job. I mean, I didn't even figure out if you know it was paid or unpaid or what it involved. People at J.P. Morgan thought that I could do it. I could serve concurrently. I mean, the vice chairman of J.P. Morgan, who was my mentor, uh, was on the board of Saudi Aramco. So he said, well, you know, if I'm the board of Saudi Aramco, you can be on the board of Petroleum in Venezuela. And I said, no, no, this is a real executive board. This actually meets... Not once, but maybe right. twice a week. I yeah. mean, it's a really involved You're thing.
0: involved. You're involved. You're
1: really involved. And, and people in Venezuela are not going to understand that somebody from J.P. Morgan is sitting on the board of Pepeza. No matter what happens, they're always going to think there's a conflict of interest. So it's a question of time and commitment and just perception, which is very important to me, that, it, that nobody perceives that there's a conflict.
0: And people don't really understand how important Venezuela is in the oil market and how important it, its potential is in the oil market.
1: Well, Venezuela's role, I mean, even from uh, as a founding member of OPEC, as a country with, you know, number one, two or three largest reserves in the world, depending on the way you, you actually calculate them. I don't believe that they're the largest. I think they're, you know, they're complex uh, reserves. They're heavy oil, mostly, but substantial reserves. And in the Americas, obviously the largest uh, reservoir of oil, uh, of energy, because obviously it's not just oil, it's also gas. The role Venezuela had always played was as a moderate player in in the market. I mean, Venezuela did not participate in the oil embargoes in the 70s. Venezuela was always a trustworthy supplier to its main markets, one of them obviously being the United States. And Venezuela's role, however, has been quite disruptive. Venezuela, I mean, Chavez suddenly replaced stability for chaos in the market. Chavez's desire to get oil prices much higher than they normally should have been has really had a dramatic effect on the oil market since. I think a lot of what's happening in the market is really a cost of $140 oil. That, you know, reaching, and and that was not what Chavez wanted. Chavez wanted $200 oil, which is an absurd policy for somebody who has such a vast reserve. So you actually want to do almost the opposite. But the fundamental complication here is, that I've always seen is, What happens when you give up a market, which is what Venezuela did? We were we were when we were in Vaveza, we were trying to expand production, double production from three million barrels to six, and Chavez decided to stop it and like I said, pursue a price, high price strategy rather than high volume, high market share strategy. And that abandonment of the market has really had dire consequences because that space has been filled by Russia. When Chavez arrived in power, Russia was producing 4.6 million barrels. Today, it produces 10.6 million. So they filled million. the gap. They filled the gap. So Russia got two things, an oil price boom and an oil volume boom. Those two booms transform Russia into what we have right now. With just one of them, it wouldn't have done and that.
0: And they can thank Chavez for that.
1: I think they can thank Chavez because if Chavez had not done what he did with the oil industry and his oil strategy and then as well were producing 5 million barrels, Russia could still produce 10.6, but there would have never have been a high oil price in the market. So you would have only had one of those two booms.
0: And Russia would be a fundamentally different place today. A completely different place.
1: I think Russia's muscle was enlarged. I, I, and in a funny way, I don't think they ever really respected Chavez, but I think they laughed at Chavez. When Russian oil began to arrive in U.S. coast, when the economics of transportation not really there for it, it was, must have been a huge laugh for them. I mean, suddenly having a market that's three days away, abandoning the market, and they having to do transshipment because they don't have deep water ports, cross the Atlantic and still get here economically. must have been the, you know, the last laugh that they could ever have.
0: No? Pedro, both your father's service to Venezuela and your service to Venezuela ended with the election of Hugo Chavez. 1998, I believe, elected. Yes, December. So why was he elected? Why was this radical elected? I think he was elected
1: because politics had already been in a tailspin. And politics had been in a tailspin because, remember, we're talking about oil. This is a country run by oil in which the oil belongs to the state and the state is run by the government. So whoever captures the government captures the treasury. They have everything. What happened was that politics just became that. It's the job of winning an election and then distributing wealth that was generated by very few people. Very few people were involved in the production of that wealth. And that process of just distributing easy wealth bred and generated bad politicians. I always say that we almost got an anti-Darwinian effect. We eliminated competition from society. The job was easy. Nobody really wanted the job because it was an easy job. People wanted to receive the benefits and actually be on the receiving end, not in the, not in the parsing out of the game. So we basically elevated a class of politicians that were worse and worse as time came. And from that is where Chavez came. So Chavez wasn't really a response. Chavez was a continuation of that. Chavez was the predictable outcome of a system that had been in evolution mode for some years. Chavez brought some interesting characteristics, however. There was always the idea of the caudillo, the military guy, We'd lived that stability had been brought in history by military guys. We've had almost very short periods of time in our history where we had civilian rule. So the idea that the military would bring order was something that obviously was in the back of the mind of people. And this guy was particularly charming. I mean, he was completely charming. However, behind that, there's a guy who was completely ignorant, too. When I had an opportunity to meet him, one of the things I spent a long time with him, oh only once. He showed up in my house uninvited. I was somebody else who I was having lunch with.
0: And this it, is early on. This is this was early
1: in the year of the election. So the elections were in December and this was in February. And he shows up and says he's going to spend 45 minutes and, and ends up staying for seven hours. And about four hours into the conversation he says, if I ever win the election. And I said, look, you know, with what I've seen in this four hours that we've been talking, I think you're going to win. And he says, no, 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 I only have 5% in the polls. I, You know, this is This is a trial run. This is for the next election that we're getting ready. And I said, look, let me tell you what I've observed. I think first you're charming, and I didn't expect that. So it's kind of unexpected charm being much more potent than expected charm. The second thing is that you're very nimble, very fast on your feet. You're you're thinking very fast. The third thing is you're endowed with something an uncle of mine used to call encyclopedic ignorance. I have a sense that you ignore everything. Factually, from A to C, there's a blank in your mind. There's nothing there. And fourth, you're completely How did he react to that one? Well, when I said the fourth, when I said you're completely irresponsible, and this is a perfect combination to win an election, he actually wasn't offended. I think the idea that I said he could win the election was more important to him than these four traits that I had you know, laid out in front of him. And when he looked at me, he says, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. I would bet my house that you're going to win the election. And, and he gets very excited. I said, but look, you, you're not the solution to Venezuela's problems. You embody everything that's wrong with Venezuela. You're the embodiment of Venezuela's problems. It is over your dead body that will create a new society. You're the continuation of our system that is dying. You're not the beginning of anything new. Despite that, he never focused on anything except the fact that I told him that a he could win. Man.
0: I don't know if I want to ask this question or not, but there are some parallels here between what you described as Hugo Chavez and what, what many people see in Donald Trump.
1: I think populism in general, which is not just here, I think it's a phenomenon that's happening in other places, it's very common. I think it's a manipulation of people through messages that basically have no substance, people lying. I mean, in the case of Chavez, I mean, I remember I said to him, the good thing about being ignorant is that you can lie. And he won't show because you yourself don't know that you're lying. I mean it's it's very different if you're purposely lying and and people can see, and you know, especially the guys in your profession are experts at seeing you know how people lie, and I don't think they need lie detectors to figure that out. But when you're a populist, charismatic, and ignorant, those lies actually come out as truth. And I think the world is full of this people right now, and I think social media the way people gather information, there's no intermediation. There's no filter. So this unfiltering, I think, is what makes it very common. In Venezuela, people didn't want anybody anybody to, to filter the information. They were just looking for something different, something new. They didn't care what they was saying. It was just saying something that was different, and different sounded better than the truth, or better than the past, or better than what you were used to. Boy, that sounds familiar.
0: So what did... 14 years of rule by Chavez due to Venezuela. What policies did he pursue and what what were the consequences? I think improvisation was the
1: name of the game. I mean, he had no idea what he was doing. He clearly was under the sway of very different elements from right and left were pushing him at the beginning. And then at some point, I think particularly after he was overthrown for 38, 40 hours, I think he very much turned himself over. To Fidel Castro, as a protector, I think Fidel had tried to take control of him at the beginning. He had been a little bit careful hadn't completely succumbed to fidel 's charm, but I think after he was overthrown, he came back much more paranoid. I think Fidel told him, You see this is the u s and this whole conspiracy, and this thing has happened you You need me and little by little, I think the turn that he took was extremely i mean it wasn't even communism, it was the bad version of Fidel's rule. I mean, it was basically tried to dominate society at whatever cost, basically destroy the institutions of democracy, which are on the way. He always had a concern that he had won, not through a revolution, not through a battle, but that he had won through an election. So that was a constraint that always bothered him, the idea that he couldn't really claim full power because he had to play the role of a democratic leader. And that was always uncomfortable to him. So little by little, what he tried to do was undermine all the institutions. And he started with the electoral system trying to rig the elections once he realized that it was vulnerable to lose an election and tried to establish power by elections. So he put together an electoral system that he controlled and then he tried to you know, say, look, I am democratic. I mean, the, the, the same way Saddam Hussein was democratic or Fidel have been democratic. They have elections all the time. They just win them by margins that are, um, you know.
0: <laughs> the rest of us can only hope for. Exactly. <laughs> So that's the,
1: the the controlling of society and dominating society and staying in power was very important. The reason that's that important is because it began to become a criminal enterprise very soon. Corruption began to pop up, first in the military, then in the oil sector, and then just all over society with exchange controls and all that. And I think staying in power became quite important. The third thing was involvement in narcotics. And I think this started as a way to help the Colombian guerrillas, the FARC and the ELN, who were trying to undermine Colombia, which was a dream Chávez had. And Chávez thought that to relive the idea of the Gran Colombia, the unification of these countries, particularly Colombia and Venezuela, Colombia then included Panama, was something that he had to work towards. So the enemy was Colombia. Colombia was getting support from the United States through Plan Colombia, So that was even another reason to undermine Colombia. And they started helping the FARC move drugs.
0: And the FARC was deeply involved in the drug business. Deeply involved.
1: And then Venezuela, and particularly the military, begins to assist in a lot of that. And little by little, suddenly you you get a military involved in narcotics and people in politics involved in narcotics, and then a state that is completely involved in narcotics. So that's what we we have. We have a country that was ruined by the wrong policies, that was completely turn into a criminal state. And that's the outcome. But the strategy, I think Chavez very much, I think his paranoia defined him a great deal. And, and, and I believe that what the Cubans did is taking advantage of their incredible intelligence capability, which is not incredible in quality. It's just that they've been doing the same job for the same boss in the same cities for a long time. I mean, it's it's just a question of doing that, that it makes them good. They had enough access to intelligence to make Chavez believe that without them, he wouldn't stay in power, that the United States was working 24 hours a day to undermine him and that he needed them. And I actually believe that the entire relationship between Cuba and Venezuela was premised on paranoia and that the 100,000 barrels of oil that Venezuela
0: gave to Cuba wasn't for doctors or wasn't for a sports trainer. I think it was just payment for protection, it was protection money. So this drug trafficking idea, would it be an overstatement to call Venezuela a narco state? Now, Venezuela is a narco state without any doubt.
1: The involvement of Venezuela's government in narcotics has changed over time. At the beginning, I think they were involved in just allowing the safe passage. And this probably even preceded in terms of the National Guard's involvement. The National Guard was involved in, in the borders and highways, ports, airports. So I think there was always an involvement there you know, for payment Toll collector and the Colombian cartels could get some stuff coming out of, Venez- out of Venezuela. Then I think there's a deeper involvement of the army and then a deeper involvement of key people in the government. Now, if you actually look at the senior government, that's basically what you have. I mean, the vice president is the designated kingpin by OFAC. The minister of interior has two indictments that were unsealed in the United States. The president's nephews. Actually, one of them is almost a uh, stepson to the president being tried in New York and awaiting sentencing for trying to export 800 kilos of cocaine to the United States. So, yes, I mean, I I think people would say that now the main business of the government is narcotics. And I think the thing that's more dangerous is that where there's at some time a lot of physical transit through Venezuela that had stopped to some degree, a lot of air traffic between Venezuela and Central America. Now the reports are there's a lot of money laundering happening, and that money laundering sadly is happening in the company in Petroles Venezuela. So you went from a company that was the most respected state-run
0: oil company in the world to a company that's probably involved
1: deeply in money
0: laundering. So, Pedro, the other thing that's happening during this period is a relationship with the Russians, Russians coming and going all the time in Caracas. Talk about that a little bit.
1: The relationship with Russia is, is an interesting one because it's um, it really got intense after the Georgia war, and it involves more one individual rather than Putin. I don't think Putin ever liked Chavez. Chavez went to Russia nine times. Putin never went to Venezuela during those eight years, only went once for a day when he was serving as prime minister, and hasn't been back to Venezuela since. I think Igor Session, who is was deputy prime minister and chairman of the board of Rosneft, and now is the CEO of Rosneft, which is now the largest publicly traded oil company in the world. He speaks Spanish, and he took a particular interest at at a particular moment in time, around 2008, to rekindle relationships with Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. The other two are for political reasons, and I think Venezuela also for political reasons, but obviously there was oil there. And there was oil in the hands of a desperate leader and a guy who was willing to cut deals, to get money, to build an alliance, to protect himself against the United States. Again, the paranoia element working. The United States is after me. I have to find other allies. So I think Chavez threw himself to the Russians in a way that the Russians couldn't say no. I'd already, we already talked about the fact that the Russians were somewhat grateful of having received Venezuela's market share. And now they were being offered pretty attractive areas in Venezuela's very large oil patch. And I think Sashin jumped at the opportunity and jumped. I mean, I remember having conversations in, in Moscow with people in Rosneft who were very against that, who thought that this was a fool's errand, that this would end up badly. They had seen what the Chinese were going through. The Chinese had actually come to Venezuela when we were running Perevesa, and they were having a lot of trouble, despite the fact that Chavez spoke about a strategic relation with China. They're very unhappy about the way they were treated. They received no different treatment than Exxon, Conoco, or Chevron received. So they, they were not treated as preferential strategic partners at all in the day-to-day management of their oil investments in Venezuela. So the Russian, a lot of people at Rosneft were concerned about that, but Session, I think, saw the opportunity of the geopolitical play together with the oil play. And it's really been Session that has played the Venezuelan card. I don't think that uh, Vladimir Putin, who didn't really enjoy Chavez, can enjoy Maduro a lot more. And a lot of the rumor coming out of Moscow is that you know, there's only one guy pushing for this relationship, and it's Igor Session. That's an interesting point, even for U.S. policy perspective, because if there's somebody who knows Igor Session in the world, it's not Nicolás Maduro, but it's Rex
0: Tillerson. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about was Chávez's support to similarly-minded populist nationalists in the rest of Latin America. He was helping those folks.
1: He was a provider of money. I mean, Venezuela's Treasury was so large during the oil boom that money started flowing in all different ways, many times just in plain cash, with Pereza and other planes transferring money to leaders or candidates around the region. And, And I think this populist wave, this leftist wave of Latin America, was mostly funded by Venezuela. I'm not sure it was instrumented by Venezuela. I think it was much more of a Cuban strategy, but the provider of funds was Venezuela. And the image, I mean, the loudmouth, the promoter was Hugo Chavez, and he went beyond that. I mean, I'm not. I think we focus on Latin America, but you know, Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece, even some elements of the Labour Party in in the UK receive money from Venezuela. I mean, there was moments in which it was unbelievable to see Red Ken Livingstone, in you know, the mayor of London, absolutely pursuing and promoting Chavez and talking great deals about things about Chavez. Joe Kennedy in the United States, a lot of what happened here with Call Joe for Oil was a blatant attempt by Hugo Chavez to buy good PR in the United States. So, I mean, there was enough money to go around. I think it did impact the region more than anybody, but but it spread way beyond the
0: region. Did you ever have any concern that the Chavez money was coming into U.S. politics?
1: I think they tried. They tried to capture the Black Caucus at a moment. They tried to invent the idea that Chavez was fighting a you know black against white battle in Venezuela, and they rallied the Black Caucus and tried to enamor it, and their members of the Black Caucus became quite active in that. I think it's very funny. It was, they, they very quickly realized that that was not the case, that Venezuela, for all of its problems, was not a, was not a country that had a huge racial clash that The politics had had become quite popular and and involved everybody a long time ago. Because of what I said before, the elites had had kind of abandoned politics. Politics had been taken up by people who wanted to participate. It was a very open system in a way. And while they tried to trump that as as a way to get political support in the United States, very quickly it went away. So there were, I mean, I found mostly that very quickly the U.S. political system became quite bipartisan on Venezuela. The figures that supported Chavez were odd man's out, very few. And I do think that Joe Kennedy's Joe for oil, which, by the way, I mean, this is something I don't say much. I actually started that program with him way before, in 1980. And he was, I mean, literally, he was 25, I was 20. And we managed to create this program, which created Citizen Energy. He then used that to go to Congress. And um, we're just two kids kind of up with a good idea that worked. But it was never used in Venezuela. For political purposes, it was just a, a good point that 's the only amount of money that came in and then Citco, which is owned a hundred percent despite the fact that mo- most Americans don't know it, has had a role i mean they, the last time I saw them, they were paying you know five hundred thousand dollars for the inaugural festivities of of Donald Trump. I have no idea what they were trying to achieve with that, but they were at that.
0: Maybe a nice party. Oh, but it was an expensive party.
1: I mean, (laughs) that was was a top level of corporate donations for for, for those balls.
0: So Chavez dies in 2013. And there's a sense of hope for a little bit, right, that things will get better. But he's replaced by his then vice president, Nicolás Maduro, and things actually get worse.
1: They get worse because Maduro It's not that Maduro was bad. All the policies that have been put in place would have made a continuation of Chávez as bad as this is, and probably even worse. I think Chávez, in a way, would have been even more extreme and got even more aggressive if if, if he had seen the tide turn. I think Maduro has been incompetent, and I think he's fallen much more. He was picked by the hard wing, the really Fidelista wing of the Castro regime in Cuba. The Raúl wing had a different candidate, which was Rafael Ramírez, which is the other vice president, who had been the president of Pévesa, not a much better person, but somebody that they thought was a little bit more controllable. I think the hardcore Fidelistas have taken over Venezuela, and the policies that they pursued are, are really the policies that they pursued in Cuba. They're even the same individuals. It's not just Cubans. It's the same individuals that in the early 60s destroyed Cuba's economy are the same guys who are making the key decisions in Venezuela. And I do think the objective has always been control control of society, the ultimate control of society. And for that, you need to eliminate all the opposition. And that you eliminate by scaring them or by forcing them to flee the country. 1.8 million people have left. And I think that's perfectly within the strategy. If 5 million people were to leave Venezuela, that's exactly what they want. If you actually look at what they're trying to do, it's very systematic. I mean, this is not improvised. This is a very systematic approach to bring a country to its knees, to dominate it, which is exactly the Cuban model that Fidel Castro exercised. We're now in a situation where
0: Venezuela I mean, well is also
1: having to live the struggle within Cuba. I think there is a struggle between these two groups in Cuba, between the reformists under Raúl and the hardcore that were Fidel's circle, trying to fight and see who wins at the end in Cuba. But that fight is actually taking place in Venezuela in a pretty hard way, where the hardcore is the one who controls Venezuela and is taking the country to the ground.
0: It's a very, very severe economic crisis. It is so severe.
1: I mean, it is a humanitarian side of this crisis that is... Daunting. I mean, Caritas, the Catholic Charities, has concluded that 300,000 kids are at risk of dying of malnutrition. That almost half of the children suffer some sort of malnutrition. That 98% of necessary medicines are basically scarce or, or not available at all. Epidemics that didn't exist have returned. I mean, what makes this bad is that it's not just the economic side of it. It's that the humanitarian side. And that this is happening in the Americas, and this is happening in a country whose resources would allow it to be the richest country in the world. I mean, because it's not just oil that we discussed before. It's all the mineral wealth that you can find. It's all the, the water that you can find. It's the largest beaches in the Caribbean. You could be a you know, an emporium of tourism. And that this is happening right here, smack in the middle of the Americas, where people are dying of hunger, where people are dying of illnesses that have been long cured, where people are dying because they don't have access to a dialysis machine which exists but doesn't have uh, parts or doesn't have elements that are needed or people are dying because they don't get chemo or people who have HIV, AIDS, basically don't get access to any of the medicines that have proven successful for that. That is the problem. The problem that has moved the world from apathy to empathy has been the humanitarian crisis.
0: So, um, Pedro, the political crisis, the struggle between the opposition and the Maduro government And then the struggle within the opposition itself, which is not united. Could you paint a picture for people of of what's happening there?
1: Well, the first thing that has to happen, and I think you cannot talk about politics in Venezuela if you do not go back to the idea that this is a narco state. We're not dealing with an incompetent government. We're not dealing with an ideology. We're dealing with a criminal gang. If you start from that, then everything else kind of falls It is very difficult to deal with politics as usual when you're trying to play by democratic rules when in front of you, you have a criminal gang. This is why dialogue has failed. When you sit across the table from criminals and you're only, as the opposition, asking for the constitution to be upheld, that's all the opposition is asking. The opposition is not even inventing a constitution. They're saying, please, uphold the constitution that you guys pressed on us. It was Chávez's constitution. Please follow it. That's all the opposition is asking for. What is the government expecting? Immunity, impunity. They just want to get away with murder, literally. And that's what's difficult, because this is a complete unmatched table. There is no way that you could reach an agreement. What the government is asking is difficult, because they chose to simultaneously ransack the country economically through massive corruption, traffic in drugs and launder amazing amounts of money related to the drug business, and violate human rights systematically. When you choose to do that, it's very difficult for anybody to give you a whole pass you know, and say, look, you know, it's okay. So the real problem of trying to run a political party or run a political campaign or just be a politician in a country like this is that these criminals will stop at nothing. And this changed dramatically after the parliamentary elections in 2015 that the opposition won and won by a resounding margin. People here in this country and others thought, well, this is good because this will force the government to negotiate. And my view was, no, 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 you don't understand it. This is something that the government will never accept. This is a 0% chance there is no cohabitation possible here. There is no possibility of anything but chaos after this outcome. And people were somewhat surprised. People who had actually worked to get the elections to happen. I remember you
0: telling me this at the time. Yeah.
1: I mean, and, and, and people were people were like totally excited. I said, yeah, look, the election was very exciting because it proved that the opposition or people who oppose Maduro are the majority of the country. That's obvious. That doesn't mean anything if a minority is willing to stay come hell high water and are willing to pursue people, chase them, put them in jail. I mean, the most important politicians, the most spoken ones, are in jail, in exile, or basically have been inhabilitated from participating in politics. So that's where you have to start looking at politics in Venezuela. There's no, the opposition is weak and they're divided. It is really difficult to be a politician in Venezuela. Then we could go into the the people who do politics in Venezuela, and have a completely different conversation. But the first one is you cannot demand that the opposition do much more than they've done, given who the government is and the fact that they've got away pretty, you know, free with what they're doing, with the international community kind of saying, oh, you have to dialogue, you have to go to elections, we have to find an electoral, constitutional, peaceful solution. And I said, look, if you don't do the correct diagnostic, you're never going to come up with the right solution or the right medicine. And that has been the problem. So... Now what we're seeing is that. What we're seeing is that the world has now understood there is no electoral solution. And when there's no electoral solution, that presents a big problem to political parties because political parties actually work around elections. So we're going right now through this moment of truth in which now everybody came to the realization that this government is going nowhere, that they're willing to fight to the bitter end, and that you have to come through different means. And my sense is that there's not enough force in Venezuela left to go against a narco state. I mean, if Colombia, the state, a much more, a real organized state, required help.
0: Significant help. Planned significant, help. was significant.
1: Plan, plan Colombia. Imagine to fight against seven, 12,000 guerrillas who are bothering and taking control of areas of the country or were trafficking narcotics and, and funding their operations that way. Imagine a situation in in which the state is the one that's involved in the narcotics and the state has basically taken over and and kidnapped all the institutions, how do you deal with it? So if Colombia needed assistance, the Venezuelan people need 10 times more assistance.
0: So that's a great transition. That's a great transition to um, U.S. policy. So the last two years of the Clinton administration were the first two years of Chavez. We had eight years of President Bush. We had eight years President Obama. Now we've got nine months or so of President Trump. What's your assessment of what U.S. policy has been toward this problem, toward your country? How has it evolved? How would you characterize it? How should we think about it?
1: The real issue here is that U.S. policy towards the world changed at the same moment the Venezuela situation became apparent. So 2001 was the beginning of the crisis in Venezuela. 2001 was 9-11. So as Senator Lugar used to say, the problem with Latin America in general is no nukes, no terrorists, no problems. I think Venezuela suffered a little bit because of that. There was a problem. I think the United States understood what the problem was, but it was a lesser problem. It was a problem that didn't threat the life of Americans, that didn't threat the existence of the world. And therefore, in a way, it always became a problem that could be pushed under the rug, and I think that's what U.S. policy has been. I mean, in all those years, the idea is, yeah, it's there. It's a bothersome issue. You know, the Bush administration, particularly President Bush, assumed the position of not confronting this guy, and I think probably he got advice that this are the kind of people who are looking for attention, so ignore him. So he completely ignored him. The Clinton administration, the Obama administration, was completely distracted. I don't think they, they cared anything about Latin America. And they delegated the entire policy to just one individual at the State Department. And when one individual makes a mistake, then the entire policy is a mistake. Where there's not enough people involved in it, if you're making a mistake, you can't correct it. I mean, the delegation happened because nobody cared about it. I have no idea, and I can honestly tell you, Michael, that I have no idea why the Trump administration has become so focused on Venezuela. But I do believe and I want to believe that when a policy review was undertaken by the National Security Council, General McMaster and others concluded, we knew that this was happening. We had the information. We sat on it. We we're co-responsible to what happened. And because that review happened along the time that this massive protests were taking place in the streets of Caracas,
0: co-responsible in the sense that we could have done something we about done something, it, but didn't do anything.
1: Exactly. I mean, when, when you've got a country that has managed to get its taxpayers to fund a massive diplomatic apparatus, a massive military apparatus, and massive intelligence apparatus, there's a responsibility associated with that Paraguay doesn't know what's happening in Venezuela, but the United States knew what was happening in Venezuela. They knew it. They deliberately chose to forget about it. This is not a crisis. I mean you know perfectly well better than anybody the ability that the White House has to manage crisis. I mean the funnel gets very narrow at the White House. I mean, maybe maybe at the State Department they can look and listen to four hundred crises at a time. But in order to handle a crisis and to really dedicate full attention, there's only a few that make it to where the attention apparatus really works, where the action really takes place. And that's at the NSC. That's at the White House. So I think Venezuela never made it there. And now it's a problem. I think now it's made it there. Now it's within, you know, four other crises that one would seem more bigger. I mean, North Korea looks bigger. It can threaten the entire world. Syria is daunting. Iran is a threat. How do you manage Iran? And Venezuela, that's sitting there. You say, well, it's not that important. Well, but it actually could be solvable. I mean, the information of what's happening, who these individuals are, and what has been built around by this administration, which is somewhat surprising because it's almost the exception to the rule, is they've built a very powerful coalition. They have a coalition in the Americas work very close with, which is the group of Lima, which is basically the, the 12 largest democracies in the region. And they're working very closely with the large European countries and Japan, on figuring out a day after scenarios. What do we do if this thing collapses? I mean, how do we step in? This is bigger than we ever imagined. The amounts of money are Greece size, okay? Now, of course, Greece threatened the stability of the euro and all that stuff. But this is as big in terms of, of a rescue. And in terms of the humanitarian, the people who could flow out of this country is as big as what you're having in the Mediterranean, in Europe with people rushing out. I mean, if this isn't controlled, you have you know, Colombia and Brazil looking at how to set up massive refugee camps on their borders. So this is the nature of the crisis. This is why it's become important.
0: And would you say that policy shifted from an at dialogue, which you've already made a compelling case, just doesn't work with a criminal gang, that policy shifted from dialogue to pressure in the Trump administration? I think
1: one could say that Secretary Kerry's view of the world that is that you could talk to anybody and can convince anybody. I mean, this Overconfidence about where dialogue gets to you was very misplaced, and I think he realized that right at the end, right at the end, even after the election had taken place, he realized that he had wasted his time, that this was the wrong strategy.
0: And with regard to Venezuela, to
1: regards to Venezuela in particular, I mean that was a disaster. So I think when everything gets revisited, taking dialogue off the table, but looking at all the facts, which is what happens when a policy review takes place. You see some facts that are so compelling that you definitely, and this is why I think General McMaster has always used a term which kind of says it all, and for some people don't understand it, it, says nothing, which is all the options are on the table. And what he's trying to say is this is so serious that under certain scenarios, we have to do certain things. And we went into the approach, we went into the analysis without prejudging. We just looked at everything and have matched developments with actions. And we're just watching things, but we're not taking things off the table, we're not saying this thing cannot happen. And I think that is the correct approach. The correct approach is you have to bring the full weight of the international community to save a society that has been destroyed by narco-traffickers, corrupt individuals, that the world knew what they were doing. The people knew what they were doing. The intelligence community knew what they were doing. The money flows were being tracked. Sealed indictments exist. So this 30 million people who are trapped by a band of forty, a hundred guys, basically had had no support from the international community, and there's this expectation that young people with wooden, you know, shields would defeat a an narco state is a travesty. And I think what this administration has done, like I said, surprising to many, is focus all the attention on the facts and not take any options off the table.
0: So, what would you say, Pedro? To American citizens, particularly Trump voters, who have a view that we have our own problems here at home, we should solve those, we should focus on those, we should not spend so much time dealing with the rest of the world, the rest of the world should solve its own problems. What do you say to Americans about why this is important to them that we help solve this problem?
1: Well, my sense is that one has to insist, however hard it is, that the promotion of democracy, and the defense of human rights is good for the economy. That prosperous neighbors make very good markets. Prosperous neighbors keeps immigrants away from your borders, if that's something that scares you. So prosperity actually is in the interest of those people who want the United States to be left alone. But in order to do that, in a crazy world, a very crazy world is not going to be a place where you want to be an American citizen. I mean, you're not going to be able to live happily ever after if the world becomes chaotic. How long is it going to take for them to understand? I think the president is understanding that. I mean, the president has got rid of some of the people whose views were exactly those of let's isolate ourselves from the world and forget about it. I think he's surrounded by people. I mean, one has to be pretty impressed by how somebody who's so careless about the way he conducts day-to-day affairs via Twitter has surrounded himself with people who are very conscious of this fact. I mean, I think if you take General McMaster or General Kelly, General, General Mathis, Mattis, Rex Tillerson, these are people who understand the complexities of the world, they understand the interrelationship of the world. They understand that democracy looks like a soft thing, but it actually backs the shipment of a lot of goods from one side to the other and the generation of jobs in one place or in the other. If Latin America becomes prosperous, the first country that will benefit from that is a main trading partner for Latin America, which is the United States. And if you are, like I said, an isolationist, and you don't want Latin Americans to come and cross the border, just make sure that Latin Americans is prosperous. And that prosperity comes through democracy. There's no other means for prosperity. Pedro, how does this end in Venezuela? Badly. It ends badly. And I think it ends, sadly, one of the things I always, every morning I wake up and I said. I've always predicted that this was where we we're headed. I always knew that we were going to end up in a situation where people were going to be dying, people are going to be running out of the country. And I didn't do enough in the sense as, what more could you have done to stop this from happening? And this is a constant thing that is in the back of my mind. But now that it's happened, it serves no purpose to think about what could I have done. The issue is now what's going to happen. And my sense is that this country... There would be a massive humanitarian crisis. This would lead to more political unrest. International pressure will have to come in to try to stop the situation and Sadly enough, for me as a Venezuelan, I have to accept that a country that cannot feed itself, cannot heal itself is a country that has lost a great degree of its sovereignty and a great degree of its independence. Venezuela will have to be rescued. the richest, potentially richest country in the region, the country that was the richest country in Latin America. The country that was believed in the 60s to be candidate to join the first world is going to have to be saved as a basket case in which almost everything will have to come from the outside. So when you begin to hear the multilateral organizations and the big democracies of the world talk, they now understand that this was left to simmer for long enough that now is a massive tragedy. And this tragedy hopefully will end up quicker because time is related to lives. Every single day that happens, people are dying that should not be dying. I mean, this is a war. It's a silent war. The outcome of the society is the outcome of a country that has been through a war. 50% drop of its GDP in the last three years. People with their base salary can only buy 10% of the calories that they need. All these things is dramatic. And I think you do not dislodge criminals with elections. That's over anyway. Or negotiations. Through negotiations. I think we're going to end up with a pretty serious international intervention. I mean, I'm 100% sure the financial side will have it. I'm pretty sure that politically we'll have it. Will it be through force? Will the neighbors have to together join and dislodge this government? It's a possibility. I mean, it is one of those scenarios that I think are in the mind of the people who dwelt dwelled into the facts. It looks strange because it's a crisis that people weren't talking about that much, but when you actually go into the facts, go deep into them, I think this is a scenario that is very much on the table. At some point, this is a government that will have to be dislodged if there's no way of changing them. I think Rex Tillerson said it in a way that was a little bit more subtle than what the president said, but he said either Nicolás Maduro returns his country to democracy or we will, talking about the international community.
0: Pedro, you spent a lot of time with us, and thank you very much for that. I just want to ask you one more question. You mentioned that your father was in exile in the 1950s from the last dictator. Do you feel that you're in exile? It's very funny.
1: I didn't leave Venezuela for political reasons. I left Venezuela because I was putting together a business, and I set it up in the Northern Virginia area, and that's how I ended up here. Now I cannot go back to Venezuela. I have uh, two bearing orders from entering or leaving the country, one is valid until the year two thousand two hundred and thirteen, and the other one is valid until the year two thousand two hundred and fourteen. So I guess I, you know, <laughs> I guess they think I'm I'm that powerful that I'm going to live two hundred years. So I'm, I mean, that makes me you know, feel good. But I don't feel as an exile in a way because I've always come back and forth to Venezuela. I mean, I, my life has been going and coming back. I, I I've never made any of the moves I made. I never thought it was permanent. So I don't feel I'm an exile. And I definitely do not feel I'm a victim. I don't have a passport. They've persecuted me. They've attacked me. They've accused me of the most stupid things. But I feel that the victims are the people who live in Venezuela, the people who are in jail, the people who are dying because of lack of medicine, the people who who were mugged last night and killed. I mean, those are the people who are victims. I mean, obviously, in the broad sense of victim, I feel I'm a victim like all Venezuelans. But in the very narrow sense, I don't. I'm very fortunate to live in a country with freedoms and liberty, which is the same kind of the ones that we want for our country the ones that we always thought we had in our country. So it's very difficult to have that sense. And since I didn't really want to participate in politics in that direct sense of elected politics, then I'm participating in the political affairs of my country in ways that before you couldn't do. I mean, I I can be very present via Twitter. I can be very present through my blog. When I I want to communicate uh, ideas, I want to chastise the government, I can do it. So I, I feel, in a way, privileged to be in this country you know, sad not to be in mind, but I think the fight goes on.
0: Well, we were privileged to have you today talking with us. So thank you very much, Pedro. Thank you, Michael. Thanks An so honor to be here. Thanks. That was Pedro Borelli. I'm Michael Morell. And please take a minute to rate us on iTunes. Leave a comment. Tell us what you think. It's important to us to hear from you. Please join us next time on Intelligence Matters. <laughs>